just wanted to begin with a simple question, a little existential maybe, but what are you longing for in life? What are you longing for in life? Deep down, at the seat of your innermost being, what are you hungry for? I know, some of you might actually be hungry right now. Anybody like that right now, actually hungry? Anybody? Annie? Okay. Here's a Snickers bar. It satisfies. Satisfies. All right. Your husband's going to be very happy about that, yeah, if you share. Another way to get at the question of your deepest longing would be to imagine that, you know, a, a, a magical genie shows up at your house or in your pocket right now or something like that, offers you one wish. What is that, what is that one wish that you would have? Would it be, you know, changing something about the world or uh, maybe changing something about yourself? Maybe taking back some word that you said or, a, or re-engaging in a missed opportunity. My problem with these types of questions, and maybe you can relate, is that all too often I am focused on me. My longings, my desires. And the longer I live on this planet, the more suspicious I have become of my longings and my desires. Thankfully, during this season that, at least culturally, feeds into my selfish desires, Advent serves as a built-in perspective corrective. Advent serves as a built-in perspective corrective. During Advent, we sit under the story of how God, uh, the God who made us and knows our true needs, went about rescuing you and I at Christmas time. And as we explore the scriptures, we see the great lengths that God went to in order to save you and to save me and to save his creation. So by investigating the promises of God before Christmas and the acts of God at Christmas, we can begin to see the severity of our situation and the extravagant grace of God. By looking at how God saves us, we can discern, I think, what we need saving from. So what have we learned thus far in this Advent season? On the first Sunday of Advent, we learned that Jesus was born to bring justice. The prophets testified that one day God would come and lift the oppressed while humbling the arrogant. And Mary believed that this promise of old was coming to pass because of the child in her womb, Jesus Look around, read the paper, look at your own experience, and you know that we are a people who long for justice. On the second Sunday of Advent, we learned through the angel Gabriel that Jesus was born to save us from our sins. We looked back at that first week and saw, yeah, we need justice. Why? Because I am unjust. And so are you. Our hearts have a problem. We need rescue from outside of ourselves. And so Jesus was born to rescue us, to save us from our sins. Last week, the third Sunday of Advent, we learned that Jesus was born to gather a family. One of the human struggles that's universal besides time and culture transcends all of those boundaries is that we have a nagging sense of isolation, alienation, and conflict between us's and them's groups, this group, that group, racial tension, genders, national pride and division, and religious pride and division. 
And we, maybe the biggest chasm is between humanity and God. And Jesus came. He was born as a king to gather us into one people through faith in him. This week, we will come to see that Jesus was born to feed the hungry. The Thomas family read earlier uh, from two texts. The first one, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. In that prophecy, Yahweh, the living God, is calling Israel to repentance and extends an offer of grace. He says, well, Isaiah says, uh, under the revelation, under uh, inspiration from God, Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that, which was the, for that which does not satisfy? Here the prophet references things like wine and bread and milk and water, the basics of daily life in the ancient Near Eastern world. But this is more than just an offer from God to give you bread and milk and wine and water. These things are metaphors for the foundational things of life. What God is saying to the Israelites in Isaiah 55, turn from your ways and come for free and receive life. I am the life-giving God. The second passage that the Thomas has read was from Luke chapter 1, a passage that was originally sung by Mary, uh, a song that we now call the Magnificat. In this prophetic song, Mary declares that because of the Savior in her womb, God will feed the hungry with good things. Jesus was born to feed the hungry. And to see this reality more clearly, we're going to fast forward 30 years roughly from Jesus' birth. And we're going to look at a story in John chapter 6. Let me set the scene for you. In the beginning of John chapter 6, we learn that a large crowd was following Jesus. Why? Because they had seen him do these signs and wonders where he had healed people. This crowd had gathered around Jesus near the time, we learn, of the Passover, which is the great celebration of the day that God delivered Israel from slavery out of Egypt. And when he did that, he performed signs and wonders through the leadership of Moses, parting of the Red Sea, plagues. We just studied all this a few months ago. The crowds who have this Exodus imagery fresh in their minds because it's Passover and because this dude Jesus is doing all of these signs and wonders, they wonder if just maybe this Jesus might be the prophet or the Messiah that was uh, prophesied who would come. So there they are in the wilderness, over 5,000 people, and they get hungry with no solution in sight, no convenient store nearby of how to get food. And most of you know the story. Little boy comes up with his lunch, five barley loaves, the cheapest kind of bread you could buy, and two dried fishes. And Jesus prays to his father over this humble meal and has his disciples begin to pass it out to this multitude of crowd of people, and it just never runs out. And people eat and eat and eat, eat until they're full, the scripture says. And then even after that, there's 12 baskets of food left over. Jesus provides bread in the wilderness, just like the account of the Exodus, where the Israelites received the bread from heaven. Now the crowds, they've got all this in their mind. Miracles, signs, wonders, feeding of bread in the wilderness. This guy has to be connected to that Exodus story. Could this be the prophet? 
They want to make him king, and Jesus knows this. So he withdraws for them for a little while. He sends his disciples in one boat across the lake, and then he disappears. Later on, there's a storm in the sea, and we know something that the crowds don't know, that Jesus came walking on the water to their boat. Gets in the boat, the sea is calm, and that is where we pick up the story in John chapter 6, verse 22. You stand with me, please, as we read this gospel of John. Chapter 6, verses 20 through, through 35. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you saw signs, but because you, or you seek me because you saw signs. You seek me not because you saw signs. Sorry about that. I can't read today. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What will you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which, which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and the one who believes in me will never thirst. Thank you for your word, living God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for, oh, for being the bread of life. And I pray as we uncover uh, you and, and who you are in this text, that you would be the living bread for us, that you would show us how we can come to you and embrace you and receive you afresh. Amen. You may be seated. I still get hung up on their question, when did you get here? And I want to know, why didn't you ask, how did you get here? I mean, that's the, that's the big question. But Jesus seems to not be too interested in that nuance, which is why I'm not Jesus and he is. And so what he does is bypasses their question of when did you get here? And instead he addresses a much bigger issue. Mainly, why did they follow him to the other side of the lake in the first place? Just a day before, in their very presence, Jesus had healed the sick among them. 
And when they were hungry in the wilderness, Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven with the food and giving thanks for the provision of a little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. After this prayer, the people witnessed that tiny lunch feed over 5,000 people to the point where everyone was full and there's leftovers. What they should have been impressed with was the source of the signs, not the signs themselves. Signs always point to something more, something more substantial, something more real. Yes, Jesus fed hungry people in the wilderness, but what did that sign mean? What kind of person could do a sign like that? The people should have been looking for where the signs were pointing. Instead, they were thinking with their stomachs, literally and figuratively. Jesus says, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. My friend John Teeter, church planner down in, in Compton, always says about this passage, Jesus is always looking for seekers, not snackers. And these people are snackers. They're looking for the quick fix, the quick meal. But they're not seeing what the sign is pointing to. If you're a follower of Jesus, why do you follow Jesus? And if you're here this evening considering maybe becoming a follower of Jesus, what is it you have heard about us Christians and why we follow Jesus? Some people say they follow Jesus because he forgave my sins. Others for the sense of peace that they experience by following him. Some because of the Christian community that they enjoy. The reasons, I find this interesting by the way, that people follow Jesus seem to shift depending on your cultural background or your socioeconomic level or your level of education. For example, among the very poor and the very rich, interestingly, many people follow Jesus because of the financial and material blessing they believe he will provide. For the very poor, there's the promise of health and wealth. For the very rich, there's an excuse to be rich. People in tribal cultures often follow Jesus because he's more powerful than the evil gods and demons that they so fear. Oppressed people often follow a liberating Jesus, whose gospel is primarily political resistance. For the affluent middle-class American, Jesus gives us inner peace. For some Americans, Jesus drinks coffee and loves guns and wants us to drive nice cars or big trucks. And for some Americans, Jesus drinks craft beers and wants us to tweet about compassion, mercy, and justice and put things on Facebook, but really spend lots of money on entertaining ourselves. These are obvious caricatures, and I'm totally poking fun at myself in almost every one of these examples. My point is that when we think of Jesus as one who meets our felt needs primarily, it's fascinating how our image of Jesus takes the form of our cultural perspective. We end up making a Jesus in our minds and talking about a Jesus with our words who looks, looks a lot like us and the stuff that we want in life. What we need to do and I think what's healthy to do is to allow Jesus to reveal himself. To allow Jesus to tell us what he is like. And to allow Jesus to tell us what we actually really need. And that's what he does with these crowds in John chapter 6. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
yes, that's what I really need. That's what they really needed. And the scriptures say, that's what you really need too. Sure, inner peace, liberation from oppression, victory over the powers of darkness, forgiveness from guilt, Christian community, and the basics of life are all good things. But they are positive byproducts of having the bread of life. Okay, that sounds good. How do I get this bread of life? Sign me up. What do I do? Well, that's the same question that the crowds ask here more or less. Here's what they said. What must we do that we may work the works of God? How do we access this bread of life? You guys ever notice how much is revealed in a question about the questioner? Listen to what D.A. Carson has to say about the question that the crowds ask. Their, their question resolves into this. Tell us what works God requires and we'll perform them. From John's perspective, their naivete is formidable. I love that sentence. They display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge that God may send them. And they evince uh, sensitivity to the fact that the eternal life is first and foremost as a gift. So they ask this question as though, yeah, whatever God wants us to do to get this, we can do it, of course. There's no humility there. There's no sense of, oh my gosh, maybe we're in over our heads. Their answer at best is ignorance, like we just don't know, or at worst it's arrogance that they could possibly do something to earn eternal life. And sadly, most of us, as I've got to know myself a little better and many of you, most of us live in the crux between these two extremes, and we get pulled in either direction. On the one hand, many of us have been taught more of a Santa Claus version of Christianity than biblical Christianity. Santa is a magical, jolly gift giver, but watch out, because he's got a list at the same time. And you could either be on the nice list or the naughty list, so you better be careful. He's watching you. And somehow, this is, this is how many of us have come to see Jesus. He's loving and gracious. All the children can come and sit on his lap, and he sings kubaya. But if you make a mistake, he's watching. And guess who his strong arm is? It's the church, because we'll let you know if you're out of line. And we'll give you the cold shoulder. On the other hand, some of us have been raised with good old American optimism. Just give me a goal, and I can do it. From the time we're in grade school, the mantra is, you can do anything you set your mind to. You can be anything you want to when you grow up. I'm, this is a conundrum as my kids are growing right under my nose. And I see lots of potential. They're great little people. There's certain things that they're not going not gonna to do. I, I don't think everybody here can be the president. We, we, but we're, we're raised with this idea that we can do anything. And the highest goals in the American life tend to revolve around ideas like autonomy and independence and personal freedom and the ability to contribute to society without being a drain on society. Because frankly, that is the worst thing we can imagine as Americans is needing something from somebody else. On the one hand, we have the sneaking suspicion that we can never measure up to God's watchful eye. And on the other hand, we don't like the idea of needing God's help. So we're in trouble. 
What must we do that we may work the works of God? Just tell us, Lord. Jesus' answer is amazingly powerful, simple, and corrective. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, this is God's work, not yours. The work is singular. They said, what works must we do? Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is one thing. The work is inclusive, so it's not just God handing out, but he hands up. He does the work, but he invites you to believe in that work. Our role is to believe, to believe in the one whom he has sent, Jesus, God's authorized agent. Now the crowds understand that Jesus is talking about trusting him. They hear his meaning and are correct in thinking that Jesus is saying that he's the one sent from God. And so they want a sign, a work of power to prove that Jesus has the authority to make this kind of statement. Now, on the surface, this is mind-blowing, right? Like, Jesus has just, in their presence, healed people, walked across the water, at least for the disciples, they knew that one, and then he, and he fed over 5,000 of these same people. They're there because they got the snack. Like, what more do you want? But, again, I can kind of get their argument. You did something pretty amazing, Jesus. You fed over 5,000 of us in one afternoon, but... Moses fed our ancestors tens of thousands of us for over 40 years. So, you know, you fed us barley loaves and dried up fish. Moses fed us manna from heaven and quail. Again, listening to their request uh, will reveal their, uh, what's going on behind the scenes. It reveals what's going on in their hearts. I love how Dale Bruner breaks this down. He says that Jesus is saying to the crowds, everything in your sentences ab about Moses is correct, except for your sentence's subject and its verb and its direct object and its indirect object. Everything else is fine. Let's address the subject first. Moses did not give your ancestors bread from heaven. It was my father, actually, who did that, and it was manna. And it is my father who gives to you now the bread of life. And I love this sentence, again from Bruner, as if Jesus is saying this. He says, my father should be the subject of more of your sentences. And the verb, the father didn't just give the bread from heaven from Moses, past tense. The father is giving you bread right now, in your very midst. And brothers and sisters, he's offering that right now as well, in our very midst, the bread of life. This is an ongoing thing. And your direct object is insufficient. You're talking about the glory days of manna, bread from heaven, but something better than manna is in your midst, standing before you, something more substantial, something that does not spoil or leave you hungry the next day. Manna is fluff compared to the Son of Man, the bread of life in your presence. And your indirect object? Short-sighted. Yes, the Father gave manna to your ancestors while Moses was in leadership, but asking for bread for yourselves right now is too small a request. The Father's intent is to give this bread of life I'm talking about to the entire world. The fact is, he's doing these things in your presence right now. After Jesus gives them a theological grammar lesson, and English teachers rejoice out there, 
the crowds respond with, Lord, always give us this bread. Still thinking that Jesus is a peddler of products, albeit heavenly, holy, powerful products, they are enamored by his words and his offer at a type of bread that is more special than the manna from heaven that their ancestors had. They want this kind of talisman, this special bread. And that's when Jesus opens their eyes to the most glorious and shocking statement of this passage. Jesus responds to their request for bread of eternal life by saying, I am the bread of life. And the one who comes to me will not hunger, and whomever believes in me will never thirst. And of course, that statement contains in it monumental doctrine. As most of you know, Yahweh, the living God, revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, we learn, by saying, my name is I Am. And here in verse 35, we see in Jesus' statement a unique Greek structure that when translated nearly unmistakably communicates that Jesus is saying, he is, I am. This is the first of seven of the famous I am statements in John's gospel. And this is where we learn that where we have Jesus, we also have God. That's an important doctrinal statement. But what I want to point out is not so much the doctrine of Jesus' divinity, as important as that is. The whole point of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the incarnation at Christmas time, was not so that God could teach us doctrine, but so that he could relate to us and we could relate to him. By the way, is it any coincidence that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? In Hebrew, Beth is house, and Lahem, Lachem, is bread. Is it a coincidence that Jesus is born in the house of bread? When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I am the source of life. I am the life giver. Come to me. Abide in me. Trust in me. I, oftentimes, and I slip into this myself, we think of Jesus as a commodity. And the gospel is sometimes presented, and maybe I've been guilty of this myself, as an insurance policy. Buy into Jesus and you'll be safe. A good insurance policy, as I was thinking about this, is one that you don't have to think about. I don't want to think about my insurance policy every day. Maybe a couple times a year, you check in with your agent. If you have, you know, birth in the family, or you buy a new house or a car or something, then you check your insurance. But I don't want to be thinking about my insurance. My insurance is there for cat catastrophic issues and maybe a few dings in my windshield or if my water heater overflows and ruins the floor. That's what I want insurance for. I don't want to think about it. The only relationship I have with my insurance is maybe my agent. Policies are not relational. If God wanted to give you and I an insurance policy, he would have sent a contract. Instead, he sent himself. He became flesh, and not just flesh, but vulnerable flesh at that. I cannot imagine a more vulnerable human existence besides an infant. Um, that is to say, except for the first night I brought home our first-time infant, and I was terrified of her, but that's because I didn't know what to do. But other than that, infants are the least threatening thing you could possibly imagine. What's more approachable than a baby? What's more gracious than giving your life for someone who doesn't deserve it? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus, the bread of life, born to feed those who are hungry, 
Jesus cannot be something that you and I obtain. He's someone whom we trust. He says, the one who comes to me will never hunger, and I put in brackets for life. And the one who believes in me will never thirst for life. That's great news. It still doesn't explain how actually we come to him then. I want that hunger in me satisfied. I want to experience fullness of life. How is it you and I come to him? How do we abide in him? I have some good news about that too. You're actually doing it to some degree right now. You've chosen to come on a cold, dark Sunday evening. And rather than hunkering down and celebrating the Seahawks' victory, you're here for some reason to worship. You've gathered to listen to the word of God, to sing his praises, to dwell with his people, and in a few moments to commune with him at the table. You come to Jesus when you gather for Bible study, when you serve other people. You come to him whenever you make small personal choices that reveal grace toward others rather than clinging to your rights all the time. You come to Jesus when you choose, even in the small moments of life, to encourage someone rather than cut someone down. You come to Jesus when you confess that you have been ungracious and critical and you regret it. I love the fact that Jesus does not give us 10 specific ways. Here are the 10 ways or the three ways or the 12 ways that you come to me. He leaves it open and ambiguous because Frankly, there are a bazillion ways you and I can come to Jesus. There's the traditional ways like prayer, like what you're doing right now, uh, well, the things that I mentioned. But there are all kinds of interfaces with Jesus every day. And most often, they occur in relational space, how we treat one another. We can trust Jesus in the big life decisions and in the moment-by-moment -moment choices of life. So come, that's what this passage is saying. Come trust the bread of life, Jesus the Christ. Come trust that he was born for love, that he died for you, that he rose and reigns. Come, receive fullness of life and eternal life because that is exactly why he was born. Father, thank you for your word, for sending your son for becoming flesh and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus the Christ. Help us, Lord, who are distracted from all the glitz and glamour of the season. Help us, Lord, who are distracted by our wants um, that numb us to our deeper needs. I pray, Holy Spirit, for your gracious work of uncovering our deep longings for, for, for life. And help us. Help us to trust you, Lord Jesus. To receive you, the bread of life. 
Thank you. Thank you.